0: Good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors, and I get to walk you all through the Word this morning as best as possible. Uh, this passage, for me, has been kind of rough the last couple of weeks. In particular, uh, it's really triumphant. It's really positive. It's really, you know, for lack of a better term, uppity. You know, it's a it's a real positive thing and. Uh, as I've been studying this and looking at how Christ reigns over all things, I've been really feeling this difficult tension. Uh, like i have a going to a funeral tomorrow morning for one of my friends for about 10 years who committed suicide. And uh, last night I found out that another person from a high school um, passed away um, of uh, medical issues that stem from uh, drug use. And it's just kind of a bummer of a couple, week and a half. And I read this text and it's hard to uh, stomach some of the uh, positivity, I guess you could say. And, um, but it's also caused me to wrestle through this text in a different way, uh, especially as it looks to the rule and authorities and the power and the dominion. And what I think we're going to actually see here in this text is that uh, if we take the Bible seriously, um, we're going to recognize that things are probably worse than we think, but also that there's a greater power and a greater hope that we think, and that the the evil and the pain and the brokenness we see when we look left and look right um, does not invalidate the Scriptures, but it's actually taught by the Scriptures and When we walk in that suffering and that pain, or vicariously through suffering and pain, someone else close to us experiences it. It actually helps us see the Bible like it actually is. We're we're so insulated from pain, especially in the suburbs out here, that I think it's easy to skip past the demonic powers. And so we're going to see their big idea in this passage is this. Evil has real power. Not made up. Not psychological, not, you know, it's not just the absence of good, but it is in and of itself a power that's at work in the world, Um, but we're going to see that Christ reigns far above with even more power. And so the question I just have for all of you this morning before we begin, maybe you're experiencing the evil powers in your life, and this sermon might give you a vocabulary to talk about what you're going through or maybe you're a person who your life has not been that hard and you kind of question the existence of these evil powers. And the question is this, is do you believe that you have an enemy at work in the world around you? Cuz I think it's difficult in a secular age to really believe in God, to believe that there's more than just what you can hold and see in the physical realm, but Is the world really transcendent? And so a lot of people believe in God but then have an even hard time believing in Satan. So just do you you believe you have an enemy in the world? Do you believe that there's evil forces at work around you? Because most of the time I don't. And this passage really uh, challenges me to think more seriously and take more seriously uh, the people that are around me. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to spend our morning talking about demons, so um, if you're your first time here, welcome, so we'll talk about that, yeah, yeah. yeah. let me pray. Father, we want to believe all your Bible says, um, all your word says, we don't want to selectively uh, believe you're telling us the truth, but we want to uh, conform our beliefs to your scriptures, and pray that this morning can be sobering, as we take evil more seriously. We pray it also be hope-inspiring, as we take your resurrection and ascension more seriously as well. Amen. Amen. So we just sang that song earlier, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, by Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, from about 500 years ago. And there's this line in the verse that I actually asked Matthew to sing the song this week, because... Of the way that this song treats the issue of evil powers that are among us, and so sometimes we can just sing songs in Sunday and like we don't really uh, mindfully recognize what we're saying, especially when it's written in Old English. So I want to kind of draw some attention just to the lyrics that he uses. Um, he says, "For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe; his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal." Like, what a downer of a song. Unless it's true, then it's revelation. Right? We can't think that if something's negative, that it's downer if it's true. You know, sometimes this difficult, hard-to-hear things bring us closer in touch with reality. And so a lot of times people who have a disposition towards melancholy or, or lowness, sometimes they're just more in touch with how the world mostly is awful all around us. And so Martin Luther here talks about this, how there's this ancient foe whose craft and power is great and on earth is not equal. That is a sobering proclamation, and that's biblically verifiable and probably experientially verifiable. That if I think that I am as powerful as Satan on my own, I'm in great danger. If I think that Satan doesn't have power over me, I'm in great danger. If I don't take the enemy of God seriously then I'm not doing the work to really wrestle with who God is and what he's doing in my life. Look with me um, at the passage we just read. There's four words I really want to highlight here in particular. Um, The first one um, is in verse 21. Far above all rule, authority, authority, power and dominion. All four of those words are four different words referring to the same idea, the rulers, the authorities, the powers, and the dominions. Those are all words of talking about the demons that sit behind the present powers that preside over our current cultural worldview, our current sociology, our current social structures. And so they're demons, but they're demons that primarily exert their influence by standing behind those who on earth have power. This is what a lot of times the book of John calls, Calls the world. It doesn't mean like the created earth. Primarily, it means the way that human society has sinfully structured itself under the influence of demons rather than the influence of God. And so rulers, authorities, powers, and dominions, they are real and they are true. And later on in Ephesians 6, there's that really popular passage about put on the armor of God. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness that reign and preside over this present darkness. And so this is the biblical text we need to wrestle with here. And so I really kind of want to highlight this reality. This is not just spiritual kind of poetic exaggeration, this is Paul telling us what actually is, that there is more than what we just see. We don't live in an imminent world that's closed and contained around physical things. Rather, we live in a transcendent world, that just as God's Spirit is well and with us, there are also other spirits besides God's Spirit that reign over this present darkness. And so one of the background stories we get to Ephesus, and this is kind of like an interesting clue as it relates to biblical interpretation, is Acts chapter Nineteen, And so in Acts 19, um, if you went through us through Acts last year, you're kind of familiar with this, but if not, let me just kind of summarize the story for you. There's really two stories in Acts chapter 19. The first one is the story of the sons of Sceva, and the second one is the story of the riot in Ephesus. And so one of the things we get to do as Christians is we get to read the book of Acts, which tells the story of how the church unfolds and pushes forward after Jesus returned to heaven, but we also get to read those stories in light of what Paul gives us here. So we get to hear the account of what happened when Paul was in Ephesus, and we recognize that Ephesians is a, a letter that he wrote after the fact, writing back to the place that he had been. And so if we want to properly interpret and understand what's going on in Ephesians, we should look at how Paul was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And so these two stories, the sons of Sceva, and then also um, the riot in Ephesus, tell us a couple things. So let me summarize this story for you, and I'm going to draw out Um, a couple points from that. So what happens first is there's these Jews, these Jewish exorcists who are kind of like unhealthily married themselves to magic practice, which is not biblical, and they're going around trying to emulate what the apostles are doing in casting out demons. And so these Jewish exorcists go around, and they're in Ephesus, and they try and cast the demons out of this um, guy who's got demons in him. and this demon kind of says, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but who are you? And then he attacks them all, and they all run out of the building naked. So it's kind of like there's a punchline about every 40 chapters in Acts, and that's one of the, cha- the punchlines. You know, they, The demon guy attacks them, and they all run out naked, recognizing that they do not have power over this demon. And so they can't just magically do this, but there has to be this greater power. And so then what happens is they all begin in that area to fear and recognize that the demons recognize the authority of Jesus, but not the authority of the Jewish magicians. And so a bunch of people start to get this like murmur going on that there's this greater authority out there, and his name is Christ, and he presides over all our magic spells. He presides over our our magic books. He presides over the demons in this area. And so what happens then is it ends up rippling out to have this economic effect. There's this guy named Artemis who his job is he makes idols... Uh, no, Demetrius, makes these idols for the god Artemis. And so there's this economic whole trade about how these people produce these things and then sell them to people, and then they worship Artemis. But what happens is people start to hear and start to experience and start to live into the fact that Christ has power over these other lowercase g gods, and so people stop buying the idols. People stop purchasing the little silver statues to Artemis. And so then what happens is the people start getting mad, not because people believe in Jesus. They're not getting mad because people are preaching the gospel. They're not getting mad because now there's another church on my block. They're getting mad because their economic way of doing things is failing. That they were loving and worshiping money and kind of using Artemis to help with that. And so they don't persecute the Christians for being Christians. They persecute the Christians because they're affecting their way of living. They're affecting their economics. And so you realize that the heart there was never really, for some of them, about Artemis. Artemis was a name they put on it, but really it was about economics. And so then what happens is they have this huge riot and they're all chanting for hours and hours and hours, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And eventually what happens is they pull in these political leaders and they say, Are we going to kick these guys out? What are we going to do? And they're all kind of going like they're disrupting our way of life. And eventually they decide to let Paul live just in case, Um, just in case his God is true. And so you see the story of these magicians both individually and collectively um, working. And so you see that the way that the demonic powers and the way demonic demonic authorities in Ephesians work is it's on multiple levels. There's actually three levels that I think you see in Acts 19 that's affirmed through the book of Ephesians on the ways in which that we experience and and see the sin in our lives. And so there's kind of three circles here that I want to highlight here. There's three sources of evil here, Satan, self, and society. So the self is the flesh, the way that we're tempted to sin by our own Um, evil desires. Satan is these forces and demons behind all of our desires and behind what's going on, this supernaturalistic enemy of God that is at work in the world around us. And The third one is society, the way that uh, we collectively and sinfully organize our society's values, and then that's kind of how that works. And so you think about this in terms of the sins that plagued Ephesus. So there's all these people doing magic stuff. Did all the individuals choose to practice magic? Yes, they all uh, there was the self, there was their sinful desires, caused them to engage in this kind of witchcrafty thing. However, in Ephesus, lots of people were practicing magic, such that the demons had, in a sense, organized this whole false religion around what it looks like to access the spiritual realm. And so my guess is none of you guys have been tempted to go get the magic books from the Sons of Sceva and access God through that capacity because that's not a huge temptation in our society. But in their society, there is this common thing, and you kind of see this, recognize this pattern that what is normalized in a community becomes the besetting sins of that community. But then also, there is the demonic influence really working in that area Through society. And so you think about that in terms of Ephesus and this magisterium and the way the demons worked, influence, and that sometimes the demons directly went to individuals. Sometimes the demons worked through socio political economic realms. And sometimes the demons worked through this false religion cultic realm. But you see, there's kind of three angles in which these powers attack and influence. And so I think about that now as we relate to our present moment. And you think, what are some of the ways that that's similar to our current society? Some of you follow the Babylon Bee, which is a satire website. If you don't know what satire is, you can Google it and figure it out later. But here's what it he says. So it means not real news, but not like in a fake news way, but in like an on-purpose fake news way because it's funny. So there you go. Mark Zuckerberg finishes another long day off deciding what people should believe. And the point of that is to highlight the fact in that a lot of us as individuals, really when you look at this circle, really believe the self piece, me versus this sin. And if I asked you, what are some sins that you're regularly tempted with? You know, and you versus the sin, that kind of showdown happens. Probably at predictable times or predictable places. There's like an occasion or a context or a person or whoever it is that kind of... And so it's really easy for us as individualistic Western people who really think that we're sharp. Yeah, I acknowledge the me and self. It's me versus my sin and that kind of how that works. But what you see here is I think that there's this kind of growing awareness in our culture that we are tempted to sin and organize ourselves in ways, not just as individuals, but as societies, such that Facebook decides what most people see and read. You think that you're this neutral evaluator of all the things you see in your life, but you're not. Zuckerberg and his team of programmers have decided, based on algorithms, what you see and what you don't see. That's one example of the way in which our society affects the ways in which we internalize things, that we're not neutral, that we kind of can look at the media and say, oh, the media is biased, you know, fake news, but newsflash, you're biased and you're a fake news person all the time. You know, we none of us are just these neutral evaluating people rather that we are bombarded with messages all day long from a variety of sources whether it's CNN or Fox News or Facebook or Facebook into all the whatever, you know, fake news blogs that people post all the time or Twitter or Instagram, we are constantly being a part of this society, excuse me. <coughs> of this society in really intense and important ways. And if we think that we are by ourselves, We're missing the point. And so this is kind of the whole thrust of what Paul's doing here in Ephesians 1 in contrast with Acts 19, that Satan works through the structures of society to tempt and beset individuals to participate in sin. And so there's a reason that all of you in this room basically struggle with all the same sin. There's a reason that you in this room basically struggle with the same sin as your neighbors. It's because Satan presides over so much of our power structures within our societies not just in terms of governments but I mean in terms of media and messaging and think about how this works I know so many men who struggle with sexual purity and increasingly so many women who struggle with sexual purity and almost everyone views it as me versus my sin They live in that self realm. They don't live anywhere else. We think about where does that come from? Because in our present moment, you can't go grocery shopping. You can't drive down the street. You can't see a billboard, listen to an ad, without somehow hearing the message, women's bodies are for male consumption. Likewise, you can't hear the message, men become mature when they consume women's bodies. You can't hear the message, you can't not hear this message, women compare yourselves to other women's bodies. And you can't hear men compare women's bodies. And vice, that's not just one directional, that's, that's, not, that's mostly gendered but not fully gendered, that these messages are everywhere. And then you hear that all day long. And, I'm, and you're not going to escape this. You can crawl into a hut and pray for Jesus to come back. <laughs> it's still in you because now the self is still a real thing. But our society has so decided that, on the one hand, bodies don't matter. And on the other hand, they're there for you to objectify and dehumanize. And you can't hear that all day long, watch it on TV. And then not internalize those messages because there are powers at work. That there are rulers and authorities having dominion. And so if you talk about vying for sexual morality, if you constantly just think it's me versus the sin, you are underestimating the powers that are at work to get you to conform to this ideology that says your body exists so you can consume other people's bodies. So most of the time in our secular society in particular, the demons stand behind ideologies. They stand behind worldviews. They stand behind these false views about who you are and who the world is. And these are just like, sexuality is an easy one because it's everywhere and obvious, But you can see that in so many other realms as well. Like even in Acts 19, you see the economics. How many Christians you know are willing to break some of God's rules if it means it puts them up in an economic position that's better? How many of us are willing to be pragmatists? And pragmatism is another version of liberalism because it diminishes God's authority and God's law and instead values outcomes over the means. But when we worship God... The ends do not justify the means. but We have this view that economics, love of money, love of other people's bodies, whatever this is, there's these power structures in our society that are vying for you to buy into whatever this is that we're talking about here. And so if you have struggled with body image, if you have struggled with sexual immorality, if you have struggled with the love and worship of money, if you have struggled with believing that the meaning of life is to pay off your house, it's because Satan is working through society around you and you are part of that culture now. Do you see those powers that work in your life? I tend to almost always see myself in that self-circle and kind of ignore the other two because I believe that I'm a rational thinking person, which is not true. None of us are purely rational, purely thinking people. My guess is a lot of you are probably similar to me. That In the moment of temptation, it's me versus this, not the powers over this present darkness are asking me to obey them rather than obey God. Do you feel that weight? Here's one of the things I've noticed lately too, is most Christians are generally dissatisfied with their prayer lives. Very few Christians I talk to go, I think I have a robust, healthy prayer life. I think most people go, I should pray more. And the people who do have really robust, healthy prayer lives generally don't talk a lot about the prayer lives. They just pray all the time. But here's one of the things I've noticed, which makes me uncomfortable, is the people I know who pray in a way that I want to imitate also tend to believe in demons in a way that makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Almost always. Like, who are the prayer warriors you know? They probably believe in demons more than you do. They probably believe in the powers more than you do. They probably believe that this is a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces, darkness, and enemy places. And when you really believe that, you realize that all you have is prayer, connecting to the Spirit of God to resist the spirits of the age. And so if you're here kind of going, I wish I had a better prayer life, one of the prescriptions I want to give you is start believing in demons. Because I know that in the moments where I recognize and am aware of the fact that I am being assaulted by these ideologies that are ruled by satanic forces, when I am in the moment where I'm aware of that, I do not struggle with prayer. So ask yourself, if you're kind of going, man, I wish I prayed more, I wish I prayed more often. My guess is you believe it's you versus the sin, and in which case the answer is discipline. But if it's you participating in this transcendent spiritual realm that there are forces stronger and more powerful than you up against you, you will begin to pray for yourself and for other people in a way that you never have before. That's just true. So this Zuckerberg illustration, oh, where'd go? is just one example of the ways in which the messages around us are getting into our minds like you think that people who read people magazine and then struggle with gossip and you're like how come <laughs> people who follow celebrities on twitter and then struggle with gossip how come people who follow fitness blogs on instagram they just post objectified pictures of people's bodies and then struggle with self-image and lust how come People who have their eyes open and walk down the street and then struggle with things. How come? It's because it's everywhere. You can't just decide to crawl into a hole and wait for Jesus to come back. That's unbiblical. But what we need to recognize is that there are real powers in force. And so we have to really ask the question, given that reality that there are forces, powers, demons presiding over our society, our collective culture, and I don't mean to just say that this is an out there thing, but this is very much an in here thing as well. It's really easy for Christians to stand here and talk about the culture, the world, the people out there, they have problems, and they're tempting me to be like them. But when you recognize the fact that about 85% of white Christians put a man on the cover of Playboy magazine in the White House... You see, when we normalize, we simultaneously, subconsciously baptize. And the other option, the person who believes that bodies matter so much that you should be able to kill another baby, even if it's 40 weeks, Like you have this cold, dehumanizing secularism versus this epicurean, hedonistic vision. And the reason we had both of these options was because our society is presided over by rulers and authorities and powers. So I'm not saying if you voted for Trump or voted for Hillary, I'm saying they both are evidence of the fact that our society is broken. But we don't get to say that we're not a part of that broken society. Because I'm a part of it, you're a part of it, we produce it, we're a part of making this culture what it is, but don't believe for a minute that we can put a guy on the cover of Playboy magazine, which totally exists to say the meaning of life is conquesting women, that that's the leader of our nation, the most powerful person in the world, and we can't believe that that doesn't subconsciously tell young people, myself included, that that is the meaning and goal of life. That what you baptize or what you normalize, you essentially baptize. And we have to recognize that we as Christians are complicit in producing this society that is subject to demons. So the question we have is not, will you bow to a power? But the question is, which power will you bow to? There is God's power Or there is Satan's power. That you do not get to be a neutral person finding a third way. There are two ways. Saying yes to Satan's power or saying yes to God's power. This is the reality in the moment of temptation. Which power will you obey? So giving in to temptation is not just disobeying God, but it's fellowship with with demons so what about it sounds pretty terrible here's what martin luther said later on in that hymn the prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little word shall fell him what is that one little word it is jesus it is christ this is what we're at. So our big idea here is evil has real power, but Christ reigns far above with even more power. Look at me in the Ephesians 1 text. Verse 20. I'm going to start halfway verse 19. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. So the working that he worked. This kind of reiteration of words is a way that Hebrews used to signify significance or highest so you talk about the book Song of Songs. It's the greatest song. Talk about that he is king of kings and lord of lords. The highest king, the highest lord. This is the work of works. The work in which he worked. The climactic event in all of world history. The great final moment. The decisive Thing that God accomplished when he rose Christ from the dead, that if any other significant event in world history seems more important to you than the fact that Christ is risen and seated on high, you have a wrong view of history. But the work that Christ worked was when he raised him from the dead and seated him at far above in the heavenly places. Not sort of above, but far above. And these two things, raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenlies. These are two areas in our gospel thinking which we are perpetually prone to miss the mark. I think most evangelicals, if I said, what is the gospel? You say, Jesus died for my sins. And that is true, but that is only part of the gospel and if you miss the fact that jesus suffered and died for your sins you'll never be able to make sense of suffering in your life you'll never be able to know what to do with the guilt and shame you feel over your legitimate wrongdoing and so the crucifixion is central it is substitutionary it is final it is effective and it's vital but it's not what paul includes here when he's summarizing the great work that god worked he talks about the resurrection victory over the grave Life abundant, life anew, conquering death because in the resurrection is when death was conquered, when the powers were overthrown, that the power of sin and death is put to sleep by Jesus overcoming sin and death. And so I grew up kind of having a resurrection-deficient gospel, meaning I knew what to do with my guilt, but I didn't know what to do with my hope or my body because if Christ rose in his body, then my body matters. If Christ rose in his body, then the physical realm matters, that my hope isn't just spiritual and somewhere else, but my hope is physical, God making this earth new with me being a part of it. And my guess is a lot of us in this room have a resurrection-deficient gospel. But even more than that, I think a lot of us in this room have an ascension deficient gospel. The ascension, when he raised him up and put him at the right hand of the Father, when he ascended on high to be seated with God the Father at his right hand. Now to sit at the right hand is imagery that speaks to the fact that he has the ear of the Father, that he can intercede for his people because he's sitting right next to him. But that also he can speak to his people on behalf of the Father because he's right next to the Father. And so this is a mediator position, the one mediator between God and man, and he's the mediator, and that's what this right-hand imagery is talking about. But also it speaks to his power, that the right hand of the Father is the place and location of his power in poetic imagery, especially in the Old Testament. And so Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father is Jesus wielding the full force of the Father's power on our behalf. And so if you have an ascension deficient gospel, you have a view that Jesus might reign over the church in their hearts, but that he's not reigning over all things in the cosmos. I hear this from time to time and people will say this. We shouldn't talk about politics or economics or social injustice or sexuality or whatever it is. like We shouldn't talk about that. We should focus on the gospel. And that sounds great. Just focus on the gospel, gospel-centered. However, if the gospel includes the fact that Christ is risen and reigns on high and rules over all things, then therefore that means that there is not one square inch in all of creation over which Jesus is not actively reigning. Therefore, presently obeying by prayer with the Spirit, pushing back and speaking into every sphere of society, is part of the Christian life. Focusing on just the gospel is fine, and that makes sense if you don't have the ascension as part of your gospel. But if Christ is seated on high, reigning over all things, then there is no peace of life that is not subject to the authority of God in significant ways. I remember the other um, couple months ago, or actually it was like a year ago now, I was selling my house, and uh, you know, the person buying the house hired an inspector and came out, and apparently the inspector did a terrible job. <laughs> because they didn't catch a whole bunch of stuff that was wrong. And internally I was like, boom, you know, I don't have to fix it. And then, so we sold the house, and then I get a call from my realtor, a guy named Kirk, he's a nice guy, and he goes, hey, uh, did you know that the power didn't work in this part of the building? And I legitimately didn't know that, but it was just an old Tempe house, things just don't work sometimes, you know, that's just kinda how it goes. And I go, yeah. Uh, that's not surprising, but I didn't know that. I didn't like on purpose hide it, but good for me they didn't catch it, right? And he, and he goes, well, the realtor just called, their realtor just called me, and they're kind of upset because uh, it's not working now. And I said, okay, well, uh, you're the realtor here. What are, my, what are my legal rights in this situation? And he says, uh, as a brother in Christ, that's the wrong question. You want me to tell you your legal rights? I'll give them to you, but that's the wrong question. The loving thing to do: hire an electrician, fix it. You can have your legal rights, but but I think there's an emphasis on that in our culture. Oh well, it isn't Sunday. It isn't spiritual things. It's business deals. And obviously, I subtly believe that at least, you know. But we need brothers and sisters in our life to tell us, no, you don't get to exclude. You don't get to exclude the rule of God from that sphere of your life. You don't get to be a Christian, but not be a Christian sexually. You don't get to be a Christian, but not be a Christian as a businessman. You don't get to be a Christian, but not be a Christian as a school teacher. That's not how it works. What are some of the areas of your life where you kind of exclude the authority of God? Because you have them, and you'll always have them. But part of sanctification, growing in faith, is finding those places that we are withholding from God's lordship and progressively, on purpose, bit by bit, bringing them under God's good and gracious reign. Because there's not one piece of your life that you reign over. All you have is authority, a delegated authority from Jesus who reigns on high. Do you sense that? Do you feel that? Do you live in that? Does that make sense? But well, then here's the question I have is I look at our world and I think well if Christ is running on high then what the heck with all this death and suffering think about the funeral I'm going to tomorrow morning I think about five kids at Queen Creek High School have taken their own lives this year I think about physical, mental, medical problems. I think about <coughs> poverty. I think Like, you can't look more than four feet from yourself and not see stories of pain everywhere. So if Christ is running on high, then what's going on? And I think that what we need to recognize is the nuance of the biblical story and the way that God's authority is being unfolded in time. That we already recognize that Christ is running on high, And in that sense, in a political sense, all are accountable to him fully and perfectly. However, in his wisdom, for some reason that I don't fully know, but I choose by faith to trust and believe, he has delayed his second coming, in which he will finally and perfectly make all things new. But until then, here's a picture that I really think gives us a sense of what we're called to be as Christians. The rightful king has established a beachhead in his territory and calls on his subjects to press his claims even farther in creation. This imagery is taken from um, World War II when at Normandy and at D-Day, a lot of historians say when that victory was won, that secured the Allied victories. However, it took a lot more time to then press that eventual victory into the whole sphere and realm of Europe. And the real frustrating difficulty was this, is even after Normandy, people still died. And it's similar for us now, even after the work that he worked, the great work in raising him from the dead and seeing him on high, we are now, as Christian warriors, not wrestling against flesh and blood, but wrestling against the spiritual force of darkness in its heavenly places, we are called to one act of obedience at a time, push back the curse in every single sphere of life with a great sense of urgency because casualties are still happening, brokenness is still all around us the only resource we have that we don't know how much of it we have is time do you think that you're at war in that every little act of obedience you have pushing back on the curse of this world that you are a part of Christ pressing his claims further into creation, that whenever we obey anything that God says, we choose to have fellowship with him over fellowship with the powers, that we partake and participate in. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our role as Christians, is to push back the curse, to recognize the powers, to say no to them, but to say yes to the power of God. And so how do we do that? What's it gonna take for us as Christians, because these powers are elusive, they are seductive, they are all around us. Every one of you will go home and sin probably before the day is over. And these, these powers have access to us like never before. Here's what um, this guy says. We'll see his name on the next slide. The iPhone is a greater threat to the gospel of Jesus in the West than secularism ever has been or ever will be, primarily because he's talking about the false worldviews, the ideologies that are hitting you from Breitbart, Huffington Post, CNN, Fox News. There's no neutral site. Our spiritual disciplines are pretty much gone, constantly interrupted. Our attention spans like three and a half seconds, 140 characters, pictures, 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 article, pass, read the headline, have an opinion. Two of the most revolutionary, provocative, subversive, cutting-edge, forward-thinking things, this is going to be pretty good, remember this, (laughs) that you can ever do as a follower of Jesus in this cultural moment are, gonna get your minds blown, wake up in the morning and before you touch your phone, before you look at the news or social media, or check your email, take 10, 20 minutes, an hour if you have it, read a psalm and pray in the quiet be alone with yourself and with God, and once or twice a week, share a meal with some followers of Jesus. See, one of the things we see in this text is this head over all things he gave to the church, which is his body. Part of the thing with the body is when part of it hurts, it all notices. You get a paper cut, all your attention, paper cut, just paper cut, but the whole body notices. Part of the antidote we have as a people of God is the body of Christ, because when a part of it hurts, it all notices. Connecting with followers of Jesus over a meal, both communion, but then also during the week, Monday through Friday. Connecting with God in prayer. This is what I was going back to, that if we think that there are powers out there and that apart from the power of God, we can just resist, we're naive. We will shrivel, we will raisin, we will succumb. We will be colonized by the secular people all around us. Rather, if we don't connect with God in his word, by the spirit, in prayer, recognizing him as a person that we must fellowship and commune with, I'm not saying have a quiet time so you can check the box and your self-esteem goes up a couple notches. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you need to connect with God in the word, by the spirit, through prayer, or else you will be swept up into the world around us because the powers are reigning over our society at large. And this is a reality. So if you find yourself looking just like your non-Christian neighbors, I know why. Because you're a person in a broken, fallen world in that the demonic structures over our society are tempting you in the same way they're tempting them. But the question is, if you find yourself staying just like your neighbors, not progressively growing in your faith, connecting with God, finding yourself growing in sanctified holiness, devotion to Christ, I know why. It's because you're not connecting with the Spirit of God, and instead you're connecting with the Spirit of the age. And there's only one place for promise that He meets us, in the gathering of the body and in the Spirit by the Word. So what's at stake? Do you believe you're at risk? Do you believe there are powers calling you? Because evil has real power, not pretend power, not psychological power, not real power. And Christ reigns far above with more power. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Paul and his experience in Ephesus and then the book he wrote to the Ephesians later. Thank you for the way they expose reality to us that we can see how things actually are because you have spoken in your word. I pray that we will increasingly conform our perspective to the perspective of your word. That we would be a courageously obedient people because of the great power that you've worked in Christ, raise him at the right hand, and that we now fellowship with him by your spirit. Amen.